The International Society for Sports Psychiatry, or better known as the ISSP, aims to carry the science of practice psychiatry to the athletic community. My name is Roy Collins. I'm a psychiatry resident at Stanford University and former collegiate football player from Yale University. And my name is Sumta Obi, a psychiatry resident at Baylor College of Medicine. This is the ISSP podcast, conversations around the intersection between mental health and sports. Hey, sports like friends and fans. Today is actually just going to be me, Roy, as my co-host Sampto was out doing his busy residency stuff and won't be able to join us today. But I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. You know, the whole reason why we came into this profession of sports psychiatry in the first place is because we want to help athletes reach, reach their peak performance when they train and ultimately compete in matches. But what if they're overtraining and route to doing so? You know, overtraining is this concept that doesn't really apply much to former elite athletes or non-athletes is we all just need motivation to get up and exercise in the first place. But for elite athletes, they certainly run the risk of overtraining, which is training slash competing to the point where the performance actually suffers. And so for this topic, I wanted to bring in someone I consider to be a friend and a mentor, Dr. Danielle Camus, who herself was a collegiate athlete and is now a renowned sports psychiatrist to talk about this topic. We want to talk about not only what the risks are of overtraining, but how you can identify and ultimately help someone whose performance may be declining secondary to, to overtraining. So hope you all enjoy the conversation. All right. Um, and for our next guest, who I'm really excited to talk to, we have Dr. Danielle Camus, who is a former collegiate fencer, who is a four-time NCAA championship qualifier, captain, and All-American from the University of Pennsylvania. She completed her residency in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine, which is a very prestigious and, and honorable program, um, where she is now an adjunct clinical professor. Um, she's now a board member with the ISSP and leads the communications division. And she co-edited the first book of its kind, the Manual of Sports Psychiatry. So thank you so much, Dr. Camus, for, for joining us and, and talking to us about overtraining in sports. But before we go um, into that kind of subgenre, I want to just you know, get to know you a little bit better. How did you find yourself in sports psychiatry in the first place? Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Roy, for that awesome introduction. Um, you know, I, I mean, obviously, like you said, I was an athlete from a young age growing up. And um, so I, so you know, obviously could kind of connect with scholar athletes. And when I started my residency, my first year, I had a patient on the inpatient unit who was a pretty high level runner. And I just kind of noticed that there's you know, a whole other area of specialty and like room for connection with people that have also kind of balanced like high level performance and and athletics with school. And I felt like I just had this connection with this patient that I, that maybe other physicians didn't have. And Mm. so it it really drew me. And then I kind of, you know, during the residency process, tried to find and create a pathway in order to get more exposure to working with athletes. And so, you know, during my time in my residency at Stanford, they just started mm-hmm. opening and developing a sports psychiatry, you know, program and clinic there. Mm-hmm. So I was able to kind of work with sports psychologists and, um, you know, they're either in the athletics department or in the PsyD program, as well mm-hmm. as sleep medicine doctors that were specializing with athletes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Formed, formed a team where we would meet every other week working with the Division One athletes at Stanford. And that mm-hmm. kind of, I think, helped 
helped propel me forward and was able to work with a wonderful professor emeritus named Dr. Ira Glick, who mm-hmm. has been my mentor, I would say. And during that time, wrote this book, um, Manual of Sports Psychiatry with the International mm-hmm. Society for Sports Psychiatry. And I think that, you know, for anyone who's in, in you know, wants to be more involved, a fantastic organization that has people from all over the world, psychiatrists that are passionate about working with athletes. And, you know, and since, since that time, you know, I just really have tried to reach out and, you know, work with people either from high school age or those who want to be training on more national levels in, mm-hmm. in many areas of sports and trying to, you know, learn the intricacies of each sport and how psychiatry is applied to, to that and how we can be helpful to athletes and help, you know, optimize their training and performance. Um, so it's been, you know, it's kind of like the new realm and area of psychiatry that's being invented as we know it. And it's been kind yeah. of pretty exciting to be part of the field. It, it, it's super exciting and we're happy to, to have you, someone who, again, co-edited the manual sports psychiatry. I mean, even saying the manual sports <laughs> psychiatry is pretty daunting. Um, you know, for, for those of us who haven't yet uh, purchased the fine book available on Amazon, can you tell us what, what consists of the manual sports psychiatry? Absolutely. So the, the book is basically developed for anyone who's working with athletes doesn't, that wants to have a better idea of, you know, what should a psychiatrist or coaches or therapists be looking for in a specific sport. And so we basically found psychiatrists that had specialties in, you know, either we kind of organize it in combat versus non-combat combat combat sports Mm -hmm. and individual Mm -hmm. versus team. Mm -hmm. And yeah, basically getting a better idea of what sort of psychiatric diagnoses are more prevalent. What are like in terms of like eating disorders, substance use, what are the things that you need to look out for, for each, each sport and the different treatment modalities. So um, yeah, there hadn't really been a book written about that previously. So it was a, we were pretty excited to, pretty excited to get that published. That sounds like a pretty big overhaul, but happy again to have the co-editor, you know, talking to talking to me as we get to learn together, you know, what exactly this field is and where it's going. Yeah. Very exciting. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, so based off of, you know, what I know about you and uh, the quiet secret here is I know Dr. Campbell fairly well. <laughs> yes, you do. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you about specifically overtraining in sports. You know, we, mm-hmm. we hope that this series covers, you know, multiple different topics that are relevant to, you know, those of us who provide care to athletes, but also athletes themselves. And so, you know, one of the fairly underrated topics within sports is those who train too much, right? You think about those mm-hmm. who don't train enough and who, you know, are go, reaching their goals, but but overtraining is, is an underlooked aspect of, of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. So, when you think about overtraining, how might somebody identify um, someone who, generally speaking, is overtraining? Yeah. So, so basically, obviously, you know, when we try to increase our performance, we have mm-hmm. to kind of increase our training load, but we have to do that in certain, you know, periodic times and leave ourselves for time for rest and recovery. And this mm-hmm. sort of this idea is called training periodic periodization. So you have mm-hmm. to like, you know, make certain intervals. So basically overtraining is when we're kind of like accumulating too much of a training load and Mm -hmm. then kind of having too much of this decrement that we can't make up for. We don't have time to recover for. And Mm so it kind of breaks down, they kind of break it down typically into three different areas. 
One is called functional overreaching. The other is non-functional overreaching. And then it, you know, to more severe degree is called overtraining syndrome. So I'm, I'll just kind of briefly describe which each one of those is. Right. So functional over, overreaching is basically, it's it's a something short-term, only lasts from days to weeks. But basically this is like the healthy recovery. This is how we actually build muscle and become stronger so that we, you know, increase our training but it leads to this sort of temporary setback. So, you know, but in the long term, after a couple of days to weeks, we have an actual improved performance. And so the outcome is something what we want positive versus non-functional overreaching, kind of more of a long-term out, like in maybe weeks to months, where basically we have intense training, but it leads to this performance deficit. And that typically there's also some psychological component or other types of bodily, like physiological symptoms that may, mm-hmm. may be contributing, mm-hmm. which leads to like the inability to be able to train at like an optimal level. But, and as, if this keeps happening consistently, where there's someone is training, you know, too much and not leaving enough time for the rest of recovery, that's when someone reaches some, this thing called overtraining syndrome, which basically mm-hmm. that they have this like deficit of performance for at least a two month period of time. Um, and then usually there's also cer- certain other like physiologic symptoms that have been noticed, either like different changes in their hormones or their immune system. And a lot of times there might be other, you know, situational stressor, stressors that might be leading to, you know, mental illness and depression um, as well. And so this, you know, can last for months at a time and really have a negative impact on the athlete. So that's kind of how we kind of think about it in these three three different subject areas. Yeah, that's very interesting, especially thinking that there's an entire syndrome, overtraining syndrome, that's what it's categorized mm-hmm. uh, by this. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm hearing that. Um, so the problems need to last two months after. Exactly. Yeah. So basically, I mean, if you're seeing an athlete that has like their performance has dropped from, mm-hmm. you know, even f- for multiple weeks, that should mm-hmm. kind of put up the yellow flag. And then if at least when it goes to like a month or two months, that's when like the red flag kind of comes up. And so when you talk about problems, I'm hearing performance decline. I think you mentioned some psychological problems and physiological issues. I'm wondering if you can you know, give me more details on what type of problems arise when, when someone has overtraining syndrome. Absolutely. So basically, yeah. So um, in terms, obviously, their performance decreases. But what's mm-hmm. happening physiologically is a lot of times you'll notice that the the athlete will have like fatigue, they'll have low mood or depressive symptoms. They mm-hmm. might have a decreased heart rate or bradycardia and, mm-hmm. and like, just like a, a loss of motivation. Like they're just not able to do the training that they used to do. And then additionally, sometimes they can have more of like, like some agitation or irritability and that might lead to like insomnia or hypertension, like feeling of restlessness. Mm-hmm. And and then, um, depending, depending, some people, some athletes can also experience like anorexia, changes in their weight or like ability to concentrate and then increased anxiety or kind of just like that feeling when they wake up in the morning and they're not feeling refreshed. Mm-hmm. So those, those are kind of this most common symptoms of, of overtraining that they can kind of, depending on obviously like the gender of the, the athlete can kind of show itself in different ways. 
how they got it. I uh, appreciate that. You know, yeah. in, in medicine, we, we think a lot about risk factors, right? We want to know, you know, who should we look out for? You kind of touched on that a little bit already. So thinking about somebody who's made the performance um, in, in for several days or even weeks has started to kind of decline a bit. You want to be thinking about, you know, how maybe they might be at risk of overtraining. So when you think of right. these common risk factors for overtraining, um, what types of risk factors would you going to look out for? Yeah, so I think... Um... The biggest thing is making sure that the athlete has an adequate time for recovery. You know, mm-hmm. that like, like we said this in this functional, in the, in the functional overreaching, it's like, obviously we have to push our bodies to some point of fatigue, but then we have to let them recover. And so if there's not a sufficient time of recovery that can lead to that, the non-functional overreaching or worse, the overtraining syndrome. Mm-hmm. Also, a lot of times like um, having too much like monotony in the training you know, can be really demotivating and people just, yeah, don't have the same stamina as they used to. Mm-hmm. Um, also having like too many competitions where people, mm-hmm. yeah, aren't getting enough training or they're just constantly traveling and, you know, and I have again, time to, to rest. And then another big one, one of my sort of specialties that I like to focus on is sleep and having sleep disturbances. So mm-hmm. obviously like if someone is having difficulty either if they have sleep apnea if they're having circadian rhythm changes or issues um you know if they're having insomnia that can like greatly their performance and then of course just like being aware of the athletes like personal life and stressors and things that are going on in their occupation which is why having like a sports psychiatrist on the team is so important because mm-hmm. they kind of you know like this you know the point is, is that a athlete's mental health can affect their physical health and performance. Mm-hmm. So staying on top of what is going on in their lives is vital. Mm-hmm. And then, and then also like if they've had any other previous like medical conditions or other mental health illnesses that could potentially predispose them. Um, and just thinking about anything else that could put more stress on their body. So in addition yeah. to like less sleep, if they maybe are working at like higher altitudes, thinking where they're having less oxygen um, or like really, really hot conditions that sometimes they'll just, you know, bonk out. And so those are just, I think all really important factors to think about that could potentially, you know, trigger this overtraining syndrome that we want to prevent. Yeah, that's, that's really great. Um, You know, the time of the recording, the, the NFL draft was just, just a couple of weeks ago. And I think about the NFL combine that leads up to the draft that kind of lets everyone know, you know, some mm. of the measurables, everyone's height and weight and their 40 yard dash time, et cetera, et cetera. And right. so, you know, from my own collegiate football experience, the time from the end of the season to the combine is kind of a, a mad dash in itself, right? You want to all of a sudden just focus entirely on training mm. for this one event, you know, that could potentially earn you millions of dollars. And so right. my question would be, how does one differentiate from just needing to work really hard and overtraining if, if, if one can differentiate? I think it's, I mean, I think that's a piece of kind of being in touch with your, with your body, you know, like, mm-hmm. if, like t- trying to measure, like, how, what is my energy level? Like, what is my motivation? Like, how strong am I feeling? And measuring your performance, like if you keep training and your performance is getting worse, then it's something to kind of look at, right? Like you might, okay, maybe I actually need to take a break here. Maybe it's 
too much and I'm not getting the return that I want, even though I'm putting the effort in. Yeah. So basically every, everyone's their own <laughs> kind of individual person. And, <laughs> and it's not right. what you're saying, it's what I'm hearing, which is always the answer in medicine, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. Um, now, we, it wouldn't be right to have a podcast with you and not talk about uh, gender-specific considerations. So I wonder if you can enlighten us, Dr. Candice, on some gender-specific considerations <laughs> over training. Ab- yeah, absolutely. So there's there's something that I've been writing a little about, and you know, I do like to focus on gender differences and typically, you know, female female gender and and what can potentially come about in overtraining for for that specific population. And so there's something called the female athletic triad, which is basically mm-hmm. a medical condition that that is involved, you know, that can be seen in female athletes. And it involves three main components. So one is typically, you know, there's low energy availability, perhaps with an eating disorder where there's a restricted amount of calories that are coming in. Additionally, second one is, is having some sort of menstrual disturbance, usually amenorrhea when a woman is not having her period. And then third piece is having some is bone loss or osteoporosis. Mm-hmm. And in this piece, it's the energy, you know, obviously there's always the input and the output. And if there's a difference between these two, you know, we have an energy deficit, which is the you know main cause of this female athlete tri- triad. And um, so it's something to really be careful and be screening for, especially if you have female athletes, it typically tends to be in more, you know, aesthetic sports like mm. gymnastics. Mm-hmm. Um, or like runners sometimes where like weight is something that is, um, important. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there, there's also something in that has been coming out in new research. that's like the gender equivalent in males mm-hmm. actually it's, yeah, it's called reds, which stands for relative energy deficiency in sport. And basically it's they're tr- trying to conceptualize a similar set of sy- symptoms that's not just in female athletes. And basically, like if you have an undernourished male athlete that has some signs of like hypogonadism or and and thirdly the impairment in bone health, it's mm-hmm. kind of like this other comprehensive model depicting this low energy state in a in a physically active woman or man. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of different areas that are important that can be a result as a result of overtraining and not having enough intake that, you know, and you can really see that there's scary and really significant physical effects from this, that, that are really important to stay on top of and, you know, can have a lot of, a lot of harm if they're not treated effectively. Yeah. You know, we talked about weight loss and abnormal periods and mm-hmm. uh, bone loss. I mean, these are all, you know, pretty major medical conditions for anyone and specifically for athletes who need everything in their body to be working just so in order to perform the right way. Um, so right. let's say you have um, a female athlete who comes to your clinic, um, maybe one of these aesthetic sport uh, athletes. So yeah. know, these are the, the, the weight specific ones. Um, what, what would you do? What would be some of the uh, treatment modalities you would consider? Well, I think that, so obviously first having like a bringing new nutritionist on board, mm-hmm. setting up, like trying to measure what is the caloric input and output and output and helping make that, you know, helping make the, making a, a nutrition plan for the athlete and, you know, having 
therapy for that, I think would be extremely helpful. You might have to even limit the amount of, you know, output or exercise that the athlete is doing. So they're able to recover. Um, Cause basically what, what happens is that, you, I mean, as you probably know, but if there's, you know, insufficient energy to fuel the athlete and they can't maintain a normal bodily bodily processes, like in the reproductive system. And so it kind of shuts down to conserve energy and then our, the, you know, the female bodies kind of stop producing this estrogen, which then mm-hmm. affects, you know, the menstrual cycles as well as the bone mass. So, mm-hmm. I mean, basically the thing to focus on is that inequality, you know, in, in, you know, in the energy, but in trying to figure out and talk to them, like what, what are they feeling? What are they experiencing? Why is this happening? You know, cause it, like you said, it, it could be, you know, something with their sleep or anxiety or mood mm-hmm. that might be affecting like negative thoughts that are affecting their maybe like um how they think about themselves Mm -hmm. and which leads them to kind of restricting and feeling like they're more in control but then leading to this poor outcome and really scary physical like impairments and so i would you know just if you if you notice or if a patient or athlete tells you that like oh i you know I'm, i'm not having my period or like I know I'm limiting the amount that I'm eating. I would kind of go through these three categories. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with the the bone loss, you have to actually have like a DEXA scan for that. But I would really, you know, screen for this and and get them help and you know try to evaluate like do they do they need the sports psychiatrist, sports psychologist, nutritionist? Mm-hmm. Like get them involved with the, with the team. Yeah, and I would imagine actually. You know, we started this talk talking about gender differences, but the treatment modality would probably actually be the same for both a male or a female athlete as far as mm-hmm. getting to pull back and also get nutrition involved and kind of figure out, you know, the input output and what other, um, yeah. you know, comorbidities are happening at the same time. Right. Um, I imagine, though, getting someone to pull back on training if, if overtraining is a syndrome it would be fairly difficult, huh? Yeah, and I think that's why, like, having an interdisciplinary approach is, like, so important like i think that speaking with the coaches and obviously if you have permission um would be really important because like they they might have to just you know forcibly limit the amount of training training that this athlete has you know not to punish them but more is to help them because you know they could really do severe damage to their body or have significant injuries if they're having osteoporosis that can you know end their their athletic career yeah do you have any yeah. advice for, you know, folks in the training staff or coaching staff, you know, those without the medical background that's concerned about overtraining and an outfit that they are around? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the most important part is just like not being scared to bring these sort of questions up and ask about it. Like, obviously even, you know, kind of just check in and see like, what, where, what are they eating? How are they performing? Have you noticed any weight changes? Mm-hmm. You know, and if they, obviously it's a little bit more in the medical area. It can be more personal, but if I think that if someone like an athletic trainer is worried and either they can ask themselves or they can have the athlete kind of referred to, you know, the sports psychiatrist to do like a further evaluation. But I would say like to have a, a low threshold, you know, to, to get them, you know, more help. Uh-huh. More help is always necessary, and you know, taking that interdisciplinary approach, you know, communicating over communicating uh, can, right. can avoid overtraining, right? So we want to make yeah. sure that everyone's on the same page and and as open communicating as possible. I hear you on that one for sure. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So um, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Candice, for telling us and, and educating us about overtraining. Um, Absolutely. Before we, before we let you go. And thank you again for uh, sharing your time with us. Um, you know, I want to talk about all the different intersectionality that you represent in this field. So you're yeah. a former collegiate athlete, uh, a woman in sports, and also um, have interest in, in Jewish athletes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if yeah. someone shares any of those same backgrounds or is interested in sports psychiatry at all, um, but it feels intimidated for any reason, what advice would you um, have for them? But I mean, they're always welcome to reach out to me. I, <laughs> I think I think that what has always been most helpful is to have someone to help walk you through and like mentor you. And, and I think that like joining ISPE or joining if you, if wherever you're training at has a sports psychiatry or sports psych program, like mm-hmm. contacting them, going mm-hmm. online and joining ISPE, which has a, like a mentoring program, or mm-hmm. just trying to reach out to anyone in your you know university or academia that you know of that is related, you know, to sports, even if you're like, a psychiatrist, but you're still interested in those sports psychologists, like it could be helpful to learn from them too, even if there isn't a sports psychiatrist where you are at. Um, but I think finding someone that could help you walk through and navigate the field and just, you know, the other thing, a word of encouragement of like having perseverance that, you know, it might not be easy. It's kind of this new, new field. We don't have like a necessarily, we're, we're about to have a first fellowship, but you know, it, it's sometimes it can be a little bit more difficult and a little more treading in an mm-hmm. unknown area, but at the same time, that's really exciting to get to pave it, you know, moving forward. So, but I'm always happy to help if anyone has, is aligned in the, my kind of like areas of specialty. Yeah, it can be very fulfilling to be an early adapter, but it's uh, definitely a road that is tenuous and uncharted. <laughs> yes, that's a good way to put it. Exactly, exactly. All righty. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Camus, for, for educating us on overtraining and just giving us a, a roadmap into uh, sports psychiatry and all your expertise. Uh, thank yeah. you for mentoring me and being a friend of me and helping me along and, and uh, spending your time with me. I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for where, where, where can the people find you? <laughs> um, I mean, you can always just Google my name, Danielle Camus, and it, my email will come up there. So feel free to do that or through my Stanford email. Um, just shoot me an email. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll talk about what we want to include in the info. But thank you again for for everything, and uh, you have a great rest of your night. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you so much for watching or listening to our content today. Please like and subscribe to our YouTube and podcast channels, and share this episode with your friends and colleagues. Also, follow us at Sports Psych ISSP on Twitter and Instagram. Or you can find us on Facebook as the International Society for Sports Psychiatry. Are you a medical student, psychiatry resident, fellow in a psychiatry subspecialty fellowship program, or a psychiatrist who has completed a psychiatry residency program interested in learning more about sports psychiatry? Join us and become a member of the ISSP. We have a free open source certificate of additional training in sports psychiatry program. For more information about our certification program, membership, or other inquiries, go to our website at sportspsychiatry.org.